You're listening to a Sunday sermon from Seven Mile Road Church in Melrose, Massachusetts, just north of Boston. To check out more about us, go to sevenmilemelrose.com. I want everybody to start by considering how unique a time this is. You're sitting there, and you're ready, and you're willing to listen to me. Now, me, knowing who I am, I'm surprised that you would put yourself in this position. But you have, and so it is. And I have a job to do. And that, as, that is, I am to hold out to you, show you, attempt to explain to you as plainly and simply, as honestly, as earnestly as I can, God's word. This is a time in our service where we sit under the preaching of the Holy Bible. Now, when we open the Bible together as Christians, different than a TED Talk, where my main goal would be to get you to think differently, or a stand-up act, where my main goal would be to get you to laugh, or a self-help conference, where maybe I'm trying to correct an error in your thinking, preaching with the Bible open and the very words of God held out for you is supposed to burn your chest. My, that's my goal this morning. My prayer has been, God, give them heartburn, as odd as that sounds. I have come to that conclusion and been reminded of this main goal of preaching from our text in Luke 24 this morning. It's there that we have two disciples who reflect back on an experience of having been taught the scriptures, and with wide eyes, they say, did not our heart burn? If an inquisitive child asks you, what's a heart? What does the heart do? Because we're educated and natural and experienced, we might go about describing the heart this way. Well, it's an organ in your chest, and it's made of tissue, and it looks like this. It's two C's put together, and it's red, and it thumps, and it pumps, and if you have any expectation of seeing your next birthday, it needs to keep doing so. Now, if we answer it that way, we have started to explain the science of the thing, but we have not explained the most important part, which is its purpose. And that is that you have a heart so that it might burn like a stove when the truth of God's word is fed to it. This is why you have a heart. This is why you have a chest. This is what you're made for. God made you to burn. We are like engines. We need fuel, resources to go, to move, to thrive. And we often forget this, and we don't know what to do in life or what it's for, and we're often outwitted by the world and its offerings, or our desires and its ticklings, or the devil and his hateful scheming, and we find ourselves disoriented and out of gas and empty. This morning, we have a text that reorients us back to the basics of Christianity and the heart that God made. So that's where we are. We're in Luke 24. We've been going through the Seven Mile Road story, which is the story of the Christian, It's my story. It's yours. If it's not, I would love it to be so. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Luke 24, verse 28. We walk through the text verse by verse. We put the the words on the screen so that you can see them and follow along. We draw some applications at the end. So let's jump in. This is verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. 
So to recap, remember where we are in the story. Two disciples are walking on the seven-mile road. Jesus has just died. Now what they've been told is that the tomb is empty. The only thing inside of the tomb are the linens that his body was wrapped in. And they're walking and they're talking about these things. And out of nowhere, Jesus starts walking with them. Where did Jesus come from? Was he hiding in the bushes? Did he sprint tiptoe up? We're not told. Jesus, again, does another one of these non-magic magic tricks later on. We'll see it in a couple of verses. So now they're talking to Jesus, but they don't know that it's Jesus. And what Jesus does is, as they walk, is he blows their minds and he inflames their hearts with the scriptures. And they're pretty buzzed up on the experience. Something different is happening. Something they've never known or experienced is happening as they talk to this stranger. They're energized. They're humming. Their eyes are wide open. They're on high alert, and Jesus acts as if he's going to keep walking. That's what our text says. It says that he acted as if he were going further. Good luck, guys. Have a good life. Catch you around the Mediterranean. Next verse, verse 29, tells us that they wouldn't let him go. No way. Not after that talk. They get him to stay. So we see, verse 29, I'll read that for you. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us, for it's toward evening, and the day is far spent. So he went and stayed with them. They invited him to stay. When was the last time you happily and urgently extended an invitation to Jesus? For a short time, I lived in a one-bedroom apartment in Springfield, Missouri, a little rougher of an area, lower income. The landlord had alligator blood in his cold, dead veins, that kind of place. Well, one night, I'm in my apartment. I hear this loud, whimpering cry outside, not from a person, but from what I soon discovered was a very small dog. And it was one of those, like, scraggly dogs that's like a mixture between a rat and a very old man. Because it's noisy, I go outside, and I look over, and my neighbor's outside, and I say, what's that? And they go, I think it's a dog. And then they very smartly went back inside their house. If you know me, you know I'm not a dog person. Basically an illegal feeling today. If you are, it's fine. Your dog is great. Just keep it at your house. Well, what was I supposed to do? I couldn't leave it. That would be wrong. It was nighttime. So I begrudgingly, reluctantly, with no passion, with no joy, took it inside. I invited it to stay with me. I named it Sally Pancakes. Sally did four things once inside. Peed. Pooped. Gave the house fleas. That was a nice gift. And then went into my closet and took out of the box and chewed on my Jordans. That was it. You might think this is about to be a confession about a missing dog, but no. A friend of mine, truthfully, I'm not lying, was able to find a family for this dog. Sally found a home. Happy ending to the story. I begrudgingly extended an invitation. I was put off by the presence. 
I couldn't wait for this dog to go. How many of us are joyless and reluctant when it comes to our invitations to Christ? How many of us do so because we have no other choice? How many of us have stopped making those invitations? It's easier when he's not around. We see the exact opposite here with the disciples. They had to have him stay. They wouldn't let him leave. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time and stress the importance of our invitation that I think we get from this text. We do love good theology here in this church. We know that it is God who does the saving. When it comes to salvation, it is God's actions and only God's actions. So we would reject any teaching that would make our choice or our surrender or our chasing after God the critical event of salvation. It's not my sovereignty extending an invitation to God that saves me. It's God's sovereignty. God sent Jesus Christ on the cross. That was God's action. And when God did that, he got a receipt that said, payment in full in blood. God holds that receipt, and it has your name on it. And God is the one that cashes in the receipt. God does the saving. But that doesn't remove the importance or the responsibility that we have as walking and talking and feeling, thinking agents. We do invite, we do surrender, we do long for. Once we are burning with the truth, we are supposed to ask Jesus to come and stay with us. Am I stretching this text? It says that Jesus acted as if he were going further. What happens if they don't extend the invitation? He keeps going. Were they always going to extend the invitation? Yes. Yes, because their hearts were burning. And that's what happens when the heart burns. It reaches out and it grabs a hold of God and it asks him to stay. So as irresistible as God is, is, the disciples had to make the invitation, and that's what they do. Think about other places in Scripture where an invitation is stressed. James, the brother of Jesus, church leader, chapter 4 in his own book. You do not have because you do not ask. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If the disposition of our heart is uninviting... We will not be visited. If we are desirous and hungry and need him and want him and we ask him to stay, he does. It's that simple. So now Jesus is in the house, and we can come to the next verse. Jesus is in the house. It says, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. Jesus appears from nowhere on a road. The disciples don't know it's him, even though he isn't wearing a disguise. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it says their eyes were opened. As if they had been closed the whole time, and then bam, they know it's him. Just as their mouths fall open in amazement, he goes a step further. He completely vanishes. 
He snaps his fingers like a house elf, and there's a rift in the space-time continuum, and he's gone. I would love to have a conversation on the miracles discussed here, but there isn't time, and it's not the main focus, so I have to cause myself to refrain from doing so. But for those who trip up on the miraculous in the Bible, the only words I can, of comfort that I can extend now is that if God grabs a hold of you and impresses himself upon you, it makes your chest to burn, the stumbling over miracles tends to go away. And then the miracles themselves actually start to become pretty sweet and hopeful. And then in the end, it's even easier to understand them. It's all part of the Christian mystery. But it's still fair to ask, why didn't they know it was Jesus? One commentator I read prepping for this said something that I found very helpful. This is what he said. He said, after the resurrection, Jesus was known as he pleased, but not always at once. Till they who gazed on him were placed in something of spiritual harmony with the Lord, they couldn't recognize him. This is a profound Christian truth, right? Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. They were in natural harmony with God. And because of that, they could see God. But since the fall, we're no longer in harmony with God's created order, and we cannot see or touch or be with God in our current nature. We can't see Jesus right now with our created natural eyes because we are not in natural harmony with God. It's the same with our spiritual nature, the nature that resides in here, in our heart, in our person, on the inside, we would say. We cannot see the truth of the gospel. We cannot believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior and give all of our time and our energy and see that he is worth every fiber of our being unless Jesus opens our eyes and causes us to see. It's Jesus that has to put us in spiritual harmony with himself that we could see him. That's what happens to these disciples, and they see Jesus. We keep working the text, verse 32. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us as he talked to us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures? This burning heart is the great Christian inside joke. You know if you know, and you don't if you don't. They look at each other. Jesus has just spontaneously combusted, and they don't even care. They reflect back on their being taught with the scriptures, and they look at each other and they say, did your heart burn? My heart burned. Yes. And then they start jumping up and down and hugging each other and crying. This burning is one of the things that often makes Christians so strange and over the top sometimes. It's because they have been touched with what can only be described as a fire on the inside. The Seven Mile Road story is a story of burning hearts, a hunger, an insatiable passion for God. Now, as I think through this text, I have asked myself, all week long I've asked myself this, is Christianity just a, another passion option among many other life options and choices for passionate things in your life? 
At work once, I had a guy ask me, what are you doing this weekend? I said, oh, I'm going to church on Sunday. I refrained from saying, aren't you? He told me, my boat is my church, and fish are my God. Now, I might have told some of you that before because it left such an impression upon me. What was he telling me when he said that? He was saying that you have your thing, I have my thing. We both acknowledged without acknowledging that we both worship very hard, but we choose to worship different things. What makes you tick is God and Jesus and going to church on Sundays. What makes me tick is the water and the waves and the wind and the fight of a fish on a hook. Admittedly, that sounds appealing. But that's not actually true. And it's hard to explain why, because both things are experiential. The Christian faith is true, yes, but it is also an experienced truth. You can't come to faith in God without the experience of having been reborn. And this introduces a level of difficulty at the, with the conversation with the coworker at the printer. What I couldn't explain at the time was that as awesome as catching a fish is, as awesome as getting it into the boat is, you aren't reborn after. Your heart might pump with adrenaline, but it's not burning the way that it does when God jumps inside of it. So my point is that Christianity is not simply a competing passion among many passions. Nothing else can make your heart burn. Other things might float your boat, pun intended, but the unbeliever, what the unbeliever doesn't know and hasn't experienced is that when Jesus reveals himself to you in the scriptures and you can see him in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, it makes your heart burn and in real and tangible ways because new life has taken place. This is the Christian story. And it's this moment when you can look back and you can say, my heart was exploding. I remember times in my own life when I was sitting under the preached word and I was blown away and I was weeping and I, my heart felt like it was exploding. These are the two disciples in our story and now we're coming to the end. This just happened, and they rise up that same hour, and they return to Jerusalem. They found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. Then they told what happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. What happens when people meet Jesus and can see him for who he is in Scripture? Every time. They get up, and they go, and they tell. They can do no other. These two run to Jerusalem. They don't wait to morning. It's seven miles. They run it in 29 minutes and 30 seconds. You do the math. They can't wait to tell. But everyone's in the room already. And they're already talking about the exact same thing. Simon just appeared to Jesus. Simon just met Jesus too. It's the third day, and stuff's starting to go down. Our disciples come rushing into the room. They blurt out what just happened. The ladies who were at the empty tomb are just looking at each other like, 
Didn't we already tell them that this happened? Men can be a little slower sometimes. This is the Seven Mile Road story. This is what Christianity is. It's the birth of the church. It's the model for our lives. I would summarize this story, the telling of this story this way. It's a burning, it's an invitation, it's a seeing, and it's a sending. So these are the points we're going to walk through as we wind down and close. The first one is this, burning. A lot of people are confused about what a human being is. Makes sense in our time. Are we randomly exploded protoplasms undergoing evolutionary change? Are we the science experiment of some more advanced alien civilization? Is this an artificial simulation and I'm just a figment of your imagination? With the way I'm talking, some of you might wish that was the case. It's way more simple. A human being is God's creation made to burn. What I'm talking about is a burning heart. A human being is supposed to have a burning heart. That's what a human being is made for. You and me, your neighbor, your kid, your coworker, your grandma. We're made to feast on and be satisfied by the very person of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Now, I think it's important to make sure that I'm not confused for stressing a fabricated or drummed up experience that's on us to produce. I'm not saying that. I'm not doing that. Hopefully, it's not coming across that way. But what I'm trying to express is that the Spirit of God, when working on a soul, applies the truth of the gospel to the heart, and then that heart burns. Burning in your chest when the truth of God is held out for you is where it starts as you, as you are starting to become a new believer. And it's where the already believer, where the already Christian, is refueled from. If you're feeling that this morning, great. If you want more of that, you're in the right place. The next thing we can draw from this text is Invitation. I used to get worked up as a younger man when a pastor or a preacher or a music leader would start a prayer with, God, we just invite you into this place. We just want you to know that you're invited here with us. I used to get worked up, one, because it's a little cringe, and it seems corny to say it that way. And because, two, I was always like, God is sovereign. You're not keeping him out. If he wants to come in here, he's going to kick the door down and he's coming in. Both of those things are still true. But it's also true that we can let our sovereignty theology, which is good and is right, is awesome, is true, outweigh, or God forbid, blot out the importance of pointing out that from time to time, the natural response from a burning heart is to want God to stay. Shouldn't we who love the glory of God be the first ones to ask God to be with us? None of us are immune from growing stale or done, dull or dispassionate and forgetting how simple and how important it is to spend time with God and ask Jesus to stay. 
right? The best advice you could give someone with a burning heart for truth or yourself if you want this more is to go in there, go inside the house, and ask God to be with you. The problem, of course, is we're afraid that if we get on our knees or we get on our face or we climb into the closet and we invite God in and we ask him to come, that he might actually do so. And then, boy, oh boy, who knows what might happen then. The disciples in our story weren't scared to ask Jesus into the house. The last point is this, seeing and sending. This is how we end today. The purpose of the human heart is that it would burn so that it would invite God in so that we could see who Jesus is, that we would go and tell others about him. Have you ever seen something so cool or so unique that you just needed to tell everybody that you knew? That's the way this is. It's so simple. Weeks ago, I was driving to work, and this massive raccoon ran across the street. And that alone was cool, huge raccoon. But there was a guy in his driveway bent over in his car looking for something in his car. And the raccoon ran up to him, sniffed his bum, and then ran off, and this guy has no idea. <laughs> I must have told 100 people that story that week. How much so the gospel, eternal good news, that the enemies of God are made the children of God because Jesus Christ went to the cross and defeated death. If this is what we have seen with our burning hearts, God intends to send us. This is what we are doing together as a church. This is Christianity. This is the Seven Mile Road story. Would you pray with me?